This is episode 91 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, you'll hear about the life of the amazing Tommy Wonder. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, your podcast home for magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 91. Wow, we are ever so close to the 100th episode of this podcast. And back when I started, I wasn't even sure we would get 10 episodes in, so this is uh, pretty fantastic. Um, I had no idea, and I've said it many times, I I had no idea if I'd even have an audience. And um, with my poor consistency, I'm lucky that I still have one. So thank you all for sticking with me. I appreciate it. Uh, This past weekend, I spent a lot of time watching videos, magic videos, Um, And two people in particular, one who is still alive and the other one who has passed away, both artists uh, in the field of magic. The the first one, uh, Juan Tamarez. Uh, Now, I don't speak Spanish, but I watched dozens of Spanish-language magic performances of his and was just spellbound by what I saw. In fact, I, I, I got to see him do one routine that comes from his book, Five Points of Magic. And I knew the method, and yet watching the performance, he still fooled me. It was so good. Anyway, I could go on and on about Juan. You all probably know already how great he is, and uh, maybe someday I will cover him. But uh, the other fellow, I was, uh, well, this guy, I actually got to see perform, uh, I, I got to see him perform live. And, wh- and I still recall it. Uh, he was. It was. He did a stage performance at the um, World Magic Summit in Washington D.C. And he walked out on stage in kind of an unusual costume. And he opened a little box. He put it on a table. Opened the little box and took out three brass cups. Uh, two were the same size. One was different. And um, began to proceed with the cups and balls. And the source, of course, as soon as I saw that he was going to do the cups and balls, I just thought, well, here we go, another cups and balls routine. Um, But that was hardly the case. Um, I was most definitely wrong. He just destroyed me with his version of the cups and balls, completely fooled me. And then he did a zombie-like routine with a birdcage, except zombies don't work that way. So, what? I mean, it was just, um, uh, I'd been in magic for a while and, um, you know what I'm referring to as far as the, uh, the, his, uh, his zombie birdcage, it's just, um, unreal. I never got to see his close up magic in person, but I have seen it on video and, and I might be wrong about that. I might be wrong. Um, I don't think I am. I think that that same conference that I was at, I think he did a special session of close-up, but so did David Roth, and you had to choose between the two. And I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I chose to go with the person I was more familiar with at the time, David Roth, and got to see his workshop and missed Tommy Wonders. And boy, do I regret that, because I'd seen David Roth many times over the years, but um, and he's fantastic. But the chance to see Tommy Wonders close up in person. Oh man, I'm sorry. I, uh, I missed that opportunity. Of course, now I have seen his close up uh, via video many times and I've seen his other cups and balls routine, which is even more devastating than his stage version, his two cup routine. 
It's just, just everybody talks about it. And I could go on and on about his magic um, before I even get to the podcast, and I'm going to go on and on about it during the podcast. So for now, let's get in today's featured artist. Today we're talking about Tommy Wonder, which was the stage name of Josef Jacobus Maria Bemmelman, who also went by the stage name Jos Bemma for a time. He was born November 29, 1953, in Holland. At the young age of four, Jos saw his first magician. The event is chronicled in the 1994 issue of Magic Magazine. He saw a magician set paper on fire inside a pan and cover it, and when the cover came off, the pan was filled with cookies, a prop commonly referred to as a fire pan or a dove pan. His enthusiasm led him to grab a newspaper, some matches, and a frying pan from the kitchen and attempt to create this miracle himself. His results were much the same as mine back when I tried to recreate the vanishing milk from Paper Cone Illusion after having seen Tony Curtis do it in the Houdini movie. Uh, less than spectacular results. Suffice to say, his frustration led his mother to explain that it was a magic trick, and thus... Yoss's first exposure. His interest would sway back and forth for a number of years, but by the age of 10, he found his first magic book. Most of the biographical articles give age 10 as his official interest in magic, but I think we can see that at age 4, he was already interested. And then by 14, he joined a local magic club and really began to learn and study and grow. He entered contests and was showing himself to be quite the remarkable magician. From early on, Yas had this ability to work on creating his own effects. And yes, he would take things that already existed, but he would put his own ideas and his own way of thinking into the routines. I went to Tommy Wonder's website for more information on this period of his life, but suffice to say, his site is gone. But because I happen to know things about the internet, I was able to dig it back up from the netherworld. Not to be confused with the Netherlands. I was all excited to read his biography page, and then, um, well, sadly, there wasn't really one word about his formative years. In fact, his biographical page was quite short. In an article written by Max Maven for Magic Magazine, which also appears in the opening of the Books of Wonder, he reveals that Tommy began to win contests from age 14 through high school, and he developed the famous trait that is... Well, it's the bane of all performers' existences. He began to get cocky, which is an exact quote. But Tommy soon discovered his cockiness and his abilities as a magician did not automatically lead to fame and fortune. And that's generally the lesson that follows cockiness. So he applied and was accepted into a school for the dramatic arts, which he attended for three years. According to his website, then he worked for two years with the theater company De Hoggish Comedy, where his theater experience enlarged. The Magic Magazine article mentions that for a time, Tommy Wonder teamed up with fellow Hollander, Dick Cornwinder. Together, the two of them pitched a small item based upon the old mouse pitch. They go by various names. I've seen them called squirmels and wormels, and basically it's a, it's a piece of uh, brightly colored fabric kind of a furry-like fabric that's usually about six inches long, has a thread attached to it, which you don't see. And through uh, just using your hands, you can manipulate it to make it look like it comes to life. So it was a, a fun little pitch item that they did on the side. 
Now, as I looked through the magic periodicals of the time to see what else they did, the only thing I could find was occasionally uh, Dick Cornwinder and Tommy Wonder were at the same magic convention, but I don't know that they um, were doing anything beyond that. Now, uh, Dick Cornwinder, by the way, you may be familiar with that name because uh, in the 1970s, he created the Card Finding Miniature Card, and which was a big hit, which was sold to Ken Brook. Ken was the only authorized dealer, but before long, they were being sold by many different makers. In the 1980s, Juan Tamarez made a splash on American TV when during a Thanksgiving-timed magic special called The World's Greatest Magic, he presented the card-binding miniature car. It was a huge hit in Juan's hands, and soon the phones rang off the hook again for this amazing little mystery. In 1977, Tommy had created a stand-up manipulation act. Fortunately for us, this was recorded and is available to watch online. The show was a talent contest called Plankenkos, and it appeared on Dutch TV. The act, highly original material, though still, uh, still had card manipulations and billiard balls. The thing was, the card manipulations were unlike what anybody had seen before. Um, for example, he starts out with a deck of cards that he removes from a box, and the cards are fanned out. A second later, the card box vanishes, and he realizes that the cards that he fanned out are now back encased inside the box. And he takes them out of the box, and once again, they trade places. It's a really, really interesting um, effect. Next, he does a diminishing card effect with, again, his own original method. After this, ring and rope routine, and then the conclusion is a billiard ball routine where the balls appear, change color, multiply, vanish, and then a huge giant ball is produced at the end. The methods and techniques during the billiard ball are very original and highly amazing. Fred Caps can be seen in the front row watching Tommy's performance. The magic, like I said, is fantastic. The only thing I don't like about that particular performance is the burlesque stripper music, which plays in the background. It's a tad annoying. And then later in 1977, Tommy came across a book by Henning Nelms called Magic and Showmanship. Reading the book and looking at his act, he quickly understood that the type of magic that he was doing was not really who he was. Further, Tommy was soon to discover that manipulation magic, as much as he enjoyed it, didn't have much of a commercial audience. Or if there was one, he didn't know where to, to find them. So close-up magic, that was something he could do and that was something he could sell. Tommy Wonder's close-up magic creations are incredible. In 1978, I found the first mention of the name Tommy Wonder. Yas Bema was announcing at the end of his lecture tour that this would be his new name. And to anyone else, I would say, it's a terrible name, too easy to make fun of. But for Yas Bema, a.k.a. Tommy Wonder, it turned out to be the perfect name. In February of 1979, Tommy appeared in the pages of Pabular with his presentation of Coins Across. And by the way, just so you know, I'm going to be putting a transcript of this particular episode on my blog, themagicdetective.com. And in that transcript, I'll post the link to all the videos of the effects that I'm mentioning here in this episode. 
Tommy's clever take, by the way, on the coins across was his solution to not have to count coins back and forth constantly. With a small change in the plot and an addition of a magic coin, unusual things happen. And please, please check out the video so you can see what I'm talking about. By the way, later in 1979, Tommy wrote an article for Pabular Magazine about standing versus sitting in a close-up performance. This was a new way of thinking. If you recall, popular close-up artists who came before him, like Di Vernon, Tony Slidini, Ross Bertram, Al Goshman, and others, were almost always seated. Even today, Danny Ortiz, Juan Tamarez, David Roth have a tendency to sit, mostly. Occasionally they'll stand, but most of the time they sit. If you watch Tommy Wonder's videos, you'll see that during his close-up routines, sometimes he sits, but often he is standing. And it's that standing that works best for some of his routines. For example, in his Magic Ranch routine that he describes in his Books of Wonder, he would be unable to do the misdirection needed in that routine if he wasn't standing. In his essay, he makes some brilliant points about standing. One of the most important is the fact that the tallest object in the room gets the eyes. In his words, being higher than the audience bestows a more important appearance and gives you added authority, making it easier to command the situation. Sometime in the mid-1980s, Tommy received a request from a restaurant in Holland with a medieval theme. They wanted to know if he could create a customized show for their restaurant. Now, this wasn't your typical restaurant gig where you're strolling from table to table. This was going to be a stage production, and it took Tommy about six weeks to develop the material. It was so successful that he stayed at the restaurant performing for five years. His original contract was for 50 weeks of work. And this material became his new stage act. In 1988, he took time out of his schedule to perform at FISM and won second place in the general magic category. And according to Magic Magazine, August 2006, after he competed, he proceeded to throw up everywhere after the competition. The nerves and the stress got the better of him, and he vowed at that point he would never enter FISM again. This restaurant gig really forced him to delve into his theatrical training. If you consider his act, it's presented as a period piece, quite theatrical in nature. There's a whole story going on from start to finish, if you pay attention, quite different from what other magicians of the time were doing. It was very standard to go from trick to tricks, sometimes connected, sometimes not. But in Tommy's stage act, one magical moment leads to the next in a logical progression. At the conclusion of a very non-standard cups and balls routine, he ends up with a lemon, an egg, and an orange. He then attempts to make them vanish, starting with the egg, but a bird in a cage that's sitting off to the side begins to make a large commotion when he picks up the egg. This leads to him covering the cage with his cummerbund and more noise from the bird. The cage rattles around a little bit, and then as he walks over, the cage begins to float in the air. This is that zombie thing I talked about earlier. It's an amazing piece of magic, and it all tells that same story. Uh, one of the uh, Another thing about his stage act that I, I found interesting, even though all the props are very, um, I guess, medieval in nature, his table 
is very modern, very streamlined. So as you as you look at it, and in fact, you probably don't even notice it, but if you do notice it, the, the first thing you'll realize is there's no place to hide anything in this particular table the way it's designed. It's pretty well thought out. One thing I did find unusual when I first saw him do his stage version of the cups and balls was that the cups, two of them were the same size. One of them was larger. They all had the same design, but like I said, there was one that was larger. Well, I discovered in the Linking Ring magazine, September 1987, where Tommy mentions that in the medieval times, they used two cups of the same size and one different. And this was based upon paintings that he had seen of Cups and Balls performers. And then from an August 2006 Magic Magazine interview with Tommy Wonder, I learned that Richard Ross, the great manipulator, had helped Tommy with his stage act. Somewhere among the years, I saw Tommy Wonder present his vanishing birdcage. Now, this is, a, this is different than the birdcage that was in his stage act. This was like the, the Blackstone birdcage. And this is a personal favorite of mine. And so many performers have used this prop and, and all with different degrees of success. Probably no one more recognizable with the cage than the Harry Blackstone Jr. He would walk out on stage holding the red ribbon covered brass cage. And after uttering the line, in a moment, this cage will vanish from my fingertips and you'll not see where it goes. Hup! And then it was gone. He'd go backstage for another cage. He'd come back out and uh, get some volunteers on stage. These were usually children. They would put their hands on the cage, and then one again, boom, uh, the cage would vanish while they were all holding on to it. Just wonderful. Next, we have Billy McCombs' hilarious version of the birdcage, which uh, the pre presentation is basically a mouse eats the cage whole. And he stuns his audience at how slowly he makes the cage vanish. It's, it's unreal and it's hilarious. Then there's Jonathan Pendragon who has his sleeves rolled up and, and he doesn't seem to move at all and yet the cage instantly vanishes. And finally, there was Tommy Wonders. And he doesn't start holding the cage. He picks it up and it seems to be very solid, not flexible or movable. His sleeves are rolled up as well and without any movement, the cage just vanishes. It's a sight to behold or not to behold, as the case may be. Tommy now had an award-winning stage act, an award-winning close-up act, and he wasn't finished. In 1996, he wrote, along with Stephen Minch, and published through Hermetic Press, his two-volume set, The Books of Wonder. And I still recall when those became available. I went straight to Denny's Magic Shop to buy my copies. And I was most curious about this thing I just mentioned, this vanishing birdcage. But then I got quickly caught up in all his articles on the theory of performing, or perhaps uh, it's better to call him his philosophy on performing. The Books of Wonder recently have been reprinted and are available through various magic shops online. So if you don't have the Books of Wonder, please pick them up. If you do have the Books of Wonder, consider reading them again because they are filled with wonderful magic and thought-provoking articles. Okay, so back. Uh, in May of 1996, Tommy Wonder appeared on the cover of The Linking Ring with a short biographical article. In June 1996, he appeared on the cover of Genie Magazine, but this time 
It was a short piece by Jamie Ian Swiss, who talks about his first exposure to Tommy's magic and then uh, how they met and later how he got to know him. This is followed by four articles directly from the Books of Wonder. In 1997, Tommy won the Performers Fellowship Award from the Academy of Magical Arts in Hollywood, California. And now maybe you're wondering, what was Tommy Wonder like? Well, in real life, I should say. From the research I did and from various videos and through a couple of interviews I've read, I think I can safely say that he was a man that truly believed in magic. He felt we, had, we all had our own inner magic and needed to discover it for ourselves. And though he wrote two of the greatest volumes on magic, he would not consider himself a teacher. He didn't think that people could be taught magic. They had to find it for themselves. Now, that might sound strange, but what Tommy was speaking of was much deeper than knowing how to do a magic trick. You can teach someone how to do a trick, sure. But I believe, and and he certainly believes it, uh, there's much more to doing a magic trick than just knowing how the trick works or even being able to perform it. There are levels to a magic trick that we can't even fathom until we've performed it many times. Only then can we begin to understand how the magic is working, and only then can we tweak it and twist it into the ultimate mystery. Now, you'd think with the Books of Wonder that Tommy was satisfied with his magic, that many of the routines in the book were completed works, but the opposite is true. He was always working to improve and to perfect, alter his works. A great example is a routine called Elizabeth. In the Books of Wonder, it's called Elizabeth III. It actually began as a dealer's item sold by Davenports of England called Elizabeth's Fantastic Joker. It was a card prediction that used a piece of apparatus to create the magic. Then a few years later, in the Pabular magazine, a magician named Wally Boyce published Elizabeth II, which was his version of the effect, streamlining things a bit. And Tommy chose to take it even further and thus his creation was Elizabeth III. But it didn't stop there. Now, Elizabeth III was what was published in the Books of Wonder, but when L&L created the Tommy Wonder videos, The Visions of Wonder, it included a routine called Elizabeth IV. So again, Tommy was working to make the magic better and better, even after having published his great two-volume set. This is another trait of his personality passion. Clearly, he was passionate about magic and about the process of magic. He thought about it on a deeper level than a lot of people do. I recall on the Visions of Wonder videos when Tommy does his nest of boxes routine and then he explains how it works. I remember Max Maven watching it and commenting and first being completely blown away by the methods and then laughing at how diabolical everything was. It kind of speaks volumes um, for Max, that Max was impressed to that degree uh, that Tommy went to to do a magic trick. In November 2005, Tommy received a diagnosis from his doctor that he had lung cancer. Initial treatments seemed promising, but then things began to take a bad turn. In the September 2006 issue of Genie Magazine, Stephen Minch, co-author of the Books of Wonder, tells the story of traveling to Holland along with Max Maven to visit Tommy in his last days. It's a difficult read because he shares his fondness for the man, how their friendship developed, and knowing this trip was going to likely be the last time they saw Tommy. 
The visit clearly cheered up Tommy. Visits by other friends would barely last two hours, but on this particular instance, Tommy was awake and alert and engaged for six hours. He felt reinvigorated. They spoke of magic and of friends in magic. They did their best to avoid the topic of his illness, as there really was nothing more that could be said. On June 26, 2006, Tommy Wonder, Yoss Bemmelman, passed away at the age of 52. As I worked on this particular piece for the podcast, I had a fear initially that I wasn't going to have enough material for a full episodes. Um, besides a couple kind of short biographical articles in Magic and in the Linking Ring, there didn't seem to be much out there on his life. But I kept pushing, I kept looking, and uh, I kept watching his magic online. I kept reading the books of wonder. And then I came across this interesting letter to the editor in Opus Magazine. Tommy was speaking about uh, something that he had read in an article by Ian Keeble. And it was something he disagreed with, and he wanted to just add his opinion to the discussion. And a couple months later, Terry Seabrook would write a piece in Opus about Tommy's letter and basically said, I disagree with everything he had to say. And the basic point of it was, Tommy disagreed with the idea that you should do things that your audience wants to see. Give them what they want, in other words. Terry Seabrook put it pretty bluntly when he said, Tommy considered himself a magician, while I consider myself an entertainer. And at the end of the day, it's easier to pay the bills as an entertainer because I'm the guy giving the audience what they want, a laugh, a smile, a few minutes to forget about life and be entertained. And yeah, it's hard to argue with that. In Tommy's letter, he says, he's learned that it's better to do what you love to do. Audiences, in the end, they want to know about you. And by doing what you love, it reveals more about you. Now, this is a radical way of thinking in the 1980s when he wrote that letter. But now, all these many years later in the 21st century, I'm reminded of how many people actually say we should reveal things about ourselves and our shows. Let the audience get to know us. Hmm. I guess Tommy was on to something. Tommy also points out in his letter that Vincent van Gogh could have painted like all the other painters of his time and likely sold a bunch of paintings. But he had his own vision, and he painted what he wanted. Sadly, that meant selling a whopping one painting while he was alive, but since his death, his paintings have brought in millions upon millions of dollars. It's a risk that any artist in any field has to be willing to take. My favorite thing I learned about Tommy Wonder came from an interview he did with Carlos Vaquira. Tommy is asked, If you had to choose a single word that represents magic for you, what would it be? And Tommy's response, beauty. And in that, I think we learn all we need to know about Tommy Wonder. A man who truly lived up to his name and gave us real beauty and magic. Well, my friends, I hope you've enjoyed this episode on the life of Tommy Wonder. And if you have, please uh, like the video in any way that you're able to. By the way, a friend of mine mentioned that um, 
I should be pointing out that you should be subscribing to the podcast. And I hadn't really thought about this, but because they've taken away the like button from some uh, podcasting services, you can still subscribe. And by subscribing, it kind of does the same thing as liking. So if there's a way to subscribe to the podcast, that way, as soon as a new one comes out, you'll get notified. Um, that'll be great. I would greatly appreciate that. And uh, until next time, my name is Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Please be well and stay safe.